Welcome to Jumpstart Your Joy. I invite you to join me as we explore what it looks like to choose joy in the messy middle while embracing the inspiration, intention, and action that you can take to find joy in your everyday. This is your host, Paula Jenkins. Welcome to episode 274 here on Jumpstart Your Joy. This week on the show, I'm really excited to be joined by two amazing guests, Lon Cow and Harlan Margaret Van Cow, who are a mother and daughter team, and they have written an amazing, beautiful duet memoir entitled Family in Six Tones, A Refugee Mother and American Daughter. Lon Cow immigrated to the United States in 1975 after the end of the Vietnam War, and she raised her daughter, Harlan, in the United States. This is a beautiful memoir that they've written together side by side. Their stories unfold and it's all about their journey and growing up at very different times and in very different places. We talk about how one develops a sense of belonging based on your location. And we talk about the isolation that is a common theme through many people's teenage years. And so I really am excited to share this conversation with you. Before we get to the show itself, I want to wish you a very warm welcome and say thank you so much for tuning in this week. And always, I hope that you had a lovely Thanksgiving. If you haven't listened to the episode that I had with Marsha Flowers of Five Blessings Candleworks, be sure and go back and catch that one. We had such an amazing conversation about the many blessings that we all have in our lives and how she approaches the messy middle as well. If you want to find out more about the show, you can find everything you need to know over at the website, which is jumpstartyourjoy.com. And you can find the show notes where I put up together the links and you'll find a full transcript to this episode. If you want to go back and check on some things, you can find it at jumpstartyourjoy.com forward slash episode 274. And while you're on the website, I will encourage you to sign up for my newsletter, which goes out every other week now, and I'm mixing it up a little bit. You'll get some behind the scenes about what's going on in each episode when they come out. But I'm also curating a list of some things that are bringing me joy, jumpstarting my own joy right now. And those are fun links of things around the web, you know, kind of joyful and playful and a little bit rebellious is the way I look at it. So sign up for that. You can find the link right there on my homepage at jumpstartyourjoy.com. So let's get into this. What I really love about this conversation with Lon Cow and her daughter, Harlan, was, I mean, one of the mind-blowing moments is when Lon talks about her manner of approaching problems, which she takes back to how she began to understand and learn the English language when she first moved here. And she takes inspiration from how she learned to parse out sentences and how there's always a verb and a noun in every sentence. And when you keep things simple, then you can really boil down the root of a problem. So you're going to want to catch that part. And I also love how the three of us spent some time looking at the themes of isolation as teenagers and what it means to belong to a place. Lon and Harlan share their stories of visiting Vietnam together and how they developed a sense of being home and what home means to them. They also share the details of how they wrote this book together, even though they had a lot of delicate topics they were talking about and they have very different writing styles. So I'm so excited to share this conversation with you. Welcome to the show, Lon and Harlan. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah. I start every interview with a question about the most joyful things people experienced in childhood. So if we could start there, would you uh, maybe separately or you guys can split it up however you want, but what did you love most as a child or in school? What were your earliest sparks of joy? My most enjoyable memories were of Christmas where, you know, my father was in the army and he had these gigantic, to me at the time, gigantic army boots, which he kept very polished and he cleaned them. Every time after he came back from a battlefield, which the boots were muddy, mm-hmm. and it would take a lot of time to himself clean the boots with the brush and then he would polish them. But for Christmas, instead of having stockings as kids do in this country, We would use, because my mother was Catholic, my father was Buddhist, but we had Christian traditions as well. Uh, He would put the boots out outside my bedroom, just by the door. Mm -hmm. There would be all kinds of presents stuffed inside his uh, military boots, which 
I believed in Santa Claus. So it was very magical for me that I got all these presents from Santa Claus. But it was magical also because the presents came inside the boots. And boots were always mysterious to me because they symbolize like this crazy, scary part of life in Vietnam because they represented war. But their home, they represent safety to me because he's back home. And then now there are presents in them. So they're they're all layers of meanings that I interpreted and associated with the boots. And then on top of that, just the Christmas. Yeah. Very special memory for me growing up. Thank you. That I yeah, there's a lot of layers in that. That's amazing. And Harlan, do you have a, something about childhood you want to share? I think mine's probably more simple, but just waking up, my mom would dress me every morning because she liked to put me in like matching outfits with like a matching like bucket hat. So for some reason, so I'd go out there and then during fall, I would rake the leaves with my dad mm-hmm. and we had a huge yard, but it was all, it was like a, more like a courtyard style. Like it didn't have like dirt in the front yard. So we'd rake the leaves every day during fall. And I had a puppy and the puppy would run around and then my mom would make like popovers or something like that. And yeah, that that's pretty simple, but it means a lot, especially because that was always his thing. It's like mm-hmm. the leaves. And then when the snow comes, he like clears up the snow. And then he was always that person taking care of everybody. And I've never had someone answer the question in front of their mom, which is yeah. kind of an interesting dynamic there. I love that you both reflected on your fathers too. Like, that's really beautiful. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I didn't make that connection. Yeah. And you together have written an amazing memoir style or memoir, Family in Six Tones. I really enjoyed it. It's so different than anything out there. I don't know if you would like to give an introduction to the work, because obviously you'll you'll do it better than I could, and maybe what your experience was of writing it. It's interesting because writing a memoir is so difficult for me, just because I'm so scared of... I guess when you're 15 or 16, you're already so self-conscious. Yeah. Then it's like, you're going to talk about your life totally raw. Like you're not even going to be able to make up a character and hide behind. Mm-hmm. And then on top of it, it's about your mom and she reads it every time you write something. I mean, in the beginning, we would read each other's stuff. Yeah. Sorry, what was the question? Just about the book. And, and okay. Yeah. So it's meant to go toward a theme, obviously, like it all goes back to the Vietnamese war, but because I didn't know a ton about it. And all I can talk about the war is, I guess, how it affected my family. Right. And I am second generation. So it's not, I, I was very nervous to approach that. I don't want to offend anybody. Obviously, because I'm working with my mom, and she's already established as an author, her audience is a lot of it is the Vietnamese community, which makes sense. So I don't want to say anything where they're like, Oh, who is she to talk about the war? So that definitely made me um, nervous, but it's mostly just about falling in love with yourself as you grow up and then also falling in love with the relationship you have with your mother because it's obviously very complicated. I think we cover that pretty well. The good thing I think about writing a memoir too is it's not autobiographical. I mean, no, it is, but it's not an autobiography. So I wouldn't ever... I don't say anything outright. Like I don't like giving directions from a reader and be like, appreciate your mother, this and this. It's just like, if they read it, I hope they get that out of what I wrote. Yes. And then, you know, it's all like more subtle. Yeah. So the, the genesis is very interesting because our publisher approached us. Right. So that's kind of unusual because it, I didn't come up with this idea myself. I didn't come up with a memoir. It just, it, it happened because we had this interview on NPR, the editor's, happened to hear it i think i mean i did not even tell my agent who all these people are now our friends you know because my my agent since 1997 ellen and we're good friends my first editor who did all my two fiction books with me were very close friends so despite that it's not like i had to interview and i said to them listen they just happened to be listening so i didn't signal it to them and when Carol heard it. I think she talked about it with the other editors at Viking. And the wonderful thing about Viking, I have to say, because there's a lot of stories about how publishing is, has become, you know, and you can fill in the negative adjectives, right? 
But I, can, I honestly, I can only tell you that my experience with Viking, and I've been with Viking since 1997, mm -hmm. has been nothing but just incredibly good. Because I just feel like the company is very nurturing of the writer. It's not like of this project and that project and that project. It's like you as a whole. Mm -hmm. So I think what happened is that Carol went and talked to Viking and other people, and they just became interested in that idea of a book that is dual voice and simultaneously mother and daughter in the present. Not like a daughter who looks back right. and writes about her, her mother's uh, life and with her. So it's both very reflective on my part because I'm of an age where I have enough to look back on and at the same time very present tense for her. So that makes it be both past and present all bundled up together because you have these two voices with different perspectives. And that's all through Viking. I mean, I would never have thought of it myself. Yeah, it's amazing. I very much picked up on some themes in it that I've since heard you talk about in that maybe Viking was also saying, could we talk about more of these things? And, and one of them that came through so beautifully was about both location and belonging for both of you through the series of, of, of Law and You coming from Vietnam um, in 1975. And then also the two of you revisiting and going back there. And I know you've, you've said a little bit, Lon, about how America is almost a character in your own history, just because, in fact, I was just listening to that, I'll link up to that interview, but just how it plays a role that's sometimes good and it's, it's antagonist and it's the protagonist sometimes in your own story. I don't know if you guys want to talk about how location and belonging has come up or if how you saw it in the book or in your lives. The issue of location and belonging are universal issues. Mm -hmm. I think every human being in the world wants to have a sense of belonging. Even, you know, non-humans like the dog wants to belong, right? So it's a very, I think, instinctive yearning that every entity with a sense of sentience probably have. And I know that my dog certainly feels that because my dog, he's a rescue. He had been abandoned. Mm -hmm. And I can just feel that he's very much attached to the sense that he wants to belong with us. So in that sense, it's also universal, but our story is just taking a universal theme, which all humans with a human heart have, and then situated within the geography that is particular to our history. So in my case, I've not often felt a strong sense of belonging. And it's something you have to carve out and find. And I remember, because I straddle so many worlds, right? And you can take as a intellectual approach and think of it as a very positive thing because it gives you access to so many touch points beyond nationalism, let's say, and beyond just inheriting certain cultural norms because I'm in so many different worlds. I have access to all of those differences. So in some ways it's great, but the downside to that is that if you're able to have a toe in each place. You're not really immersed in any one place. Right. So as a result, you don't really feel you belong. And it's something you really have to work towards to have that feeling. And I used to think of it as a place of the belonging is attached to a place. So I would think, well, you know, I just don't belong in America. But if I were to be in Vietnam, I would feel that. And then when I did go to Vietnam, in the early 90s, I was absolutely shocked that the Vietnamese there immediately pulled me out of the environment and knew that I came from America. You know, I'm totally looking Vietnamese and, you know, and I'm they're dressed in jeans there too. It's not like they're in black pajamas. So I'm dressed like them and they identified me as an outsider. Yeah even when I went there. So it can't be attached to geography or location, right? And it's internal. Mm -hmm. But that's much easier said than done. I mean, just because you can say it doesn't mean that you feel that sense of belonging internally. Right. It's a constant process. Yes. And I, I'm sure all of us relate to that, you know, that we, we feel like, oh, you know, my 
partner doesn't understand me, I don't feel like I belong. I think those are things that are just kind of struggles that we all have. It's just that ours are in this particular location. I know, Harlan, I don't know if this helps give context, but I was moved by your description of going to Saigon with your mom and even noticing how everything was different. I think when you were six and how you could, you didn't have the language to speak with people there, but that you really were absorbing all of the things. It's so hard to always like follow her because she always like, you know, she's like a professor. It's her job, so it's so hard. For me, the difference between the two of us, right, is like her lack of being able to feel that she belongs somewhere. It's pretty clear where it comes from. Do you know what I mean? Like, because it's like, okay, obviously you're displaced horribly by this war. Right. Nobody treats you well when you first get here and then you feel lost and you have to work your way up by yourself. Because she struggled through that, and, you know, people always say, like, immigrant parents, they just work super hard, not for themselves, but for their kids to have the choice to do whatever they want. Mm-hmm. And so I feel very, there's no better word. I feel stupid, like, complaining about, like, oh, I don't belong in high school. Because that's such a, it's such a typical thing for that age, especially being a girl. And I feel um, very grateful for my mom because she allowed me to... I don't know if this is going to make sense. She let me, any feeling that I, I had of feeling displaced, she let me have that come from a place that's more normal, right? Like something that I can heal from. It's nothing, she, she made it so I, I didn't have to, you know, work all the time if I didn't want to. A lot of my friends have to work, especially like at the edge of the city. Like a lot of friends I have, they didn't have any time to do anything with their friends because they had to actually support their own families because their moms couldn't work, their dads didn't work. She, she always thought of me first. She just like a week ago, she would tell me like, she was like, oh, like, you know, 10 years ago, I set aside this amount of money. And it just came up and I forgot about it for you. Just to have that, it means a lot. And I, that's why when people ask about belonging and they always bring up the culture of like Vietnam mm-hmm. and America, it's funny because to me, my sense of not being able to belong doesn't come from that. In fact, I feel that actually helps me. It gives me an advantage of understanding the world because I'm exposed to everything, but I'm still safe. Mm-hmm. So anything that I've had where I felt displaced, it came from, I think, carrying her trauma with me, if that makes sense, because we're so close. A lot of her personality traits, I mean, they're beautiful. They're very special. <laughs> and they've rubbed off onto me and they've, I mean, my friends can tell and they always say like, oh my God, you're just like your mom. And obviously like nobody wants to hear that when they're like, they're like, oh my God, that's my biggest fear. But it's actually like a good thing. Like even just now, when you like pointed out that we both talked about our dads, like I had no idea. And that's, that's a small thing, but it comes, it's anything that I felt of not knowing where I belong. It's, I don't know. I, I don't know if that's something that can ever be fixed. And I don't know if I need it to be fixed. Because that's just human nature, you know, like it's not, no matter who you are, people always blame it on themselves. But it's, I mean, even if you were the person like sitting 10 seats away from you, you probably still feel the same way. So yeah. it's important to just accept it and be aware of that with everybody and just, just being conscious of everyone else's space. I think that's how we can help. There's a lot of depth to that. Thank you. Because I think you're right. Obviously, people do experience things in different degrees. And that's, but I think you're right. And one of the things, of course, that stood out for me is is also the theme of kind of isolation. And I think you both experienced that very different ways in kind of that coming of age time during high school, you both being different in many ways, but feeling so much of, I mean, my own experience with high school as a, you know, an American was also very isolating. I think we all go through that. It, it's very interesting that it is, we all have feelings of, do I really belong? And that's like kind of a universal question. I don't know if you guys want to talk a little bit about how you see yourselves or each other maybe in that kind of high school stage of, because it was so different for you. And yet there were so many like striking similarities of the things that you felt that kind of reflected back at each other throughout the book. Okay. Why don't you say how you've seen my high school and also how you see well, I think high school, because it's book-ended, you know, there, there are two book there are two uh, marks. One is, you know, you, you're entering high school around 13 or 14, mm-hmm. and you're leaving around 17, 18. And those are very charged years for human development. Yes. So a lot of times, I think high school just shakes up 
a lot of the physiological, hormonal changes that all, whether boys or girls, go through. So they can be very traumatic in, in and of themselves. And for me, those normal human development were papered over by the shock of arriving in this country. Yeah. And never thinking, you know, that they would come because when you're in Vietnam, you actually never, even though we were in the middle of the war mm-hmm. and it's, it was such a long war, one almost thought that the war would just continue forever. Mm-hmm. Even if we thought that it would end, we never thought it would end in our defeat that we would then leave. So we thought, well, you know, maybe it would be like North Korea, South Korea, like, okay, two countries, but the North would just be up there and the South would just be down here and we would have our life in the South. So the the shock of arriving was huge for me. And I think it was so shocking that it displaced all of the normal teenager stuff. I was just feeling totally like an outsider, but not an outsider because I was 13 years old and feeling like a nerd, even though I was that too. It was more like, oh my God, I speak English very tentatively. How am I going to learn it? So it was all, it all became for me, like the answer was very formulaic. I I felt like everything that was wrong came from my being an outsider to this country. And the way to become an insider was through education. And education for me was like really mastering the English language. And mastering the English language also helped me actually because I was very interested in diagramming sentences because it felt like I could segment a big problem into smaller problems. And I think that's a really good skill. Uh, Diagramming is a very good skill to apply in life generally. So for example, when I was 13 and I read a passage in a James Joyce book or a Henry James, you know, where the sentences are long. They're not like Hemingway sentences that are more short, right? So if you have a really long flowery sentence and English is not your first language, the first thing you have to look for is the subject and the verb. Yeah. And once you have that, then you realize that the adjectives are just descriptions of the noun and the adverbs are just further descriptions, modifiers of the verb. But if you can identify the subject and the verb, you can understand the English sentence. And if I can understand the English sentence, then I'll do better in school. Now, when I see a problem, I try to find the subject and the verb of that problem, you know, because then it's just, I'm not, the problem is not bigger. It's really a flowery sentence, like the problem can be a flowery sentence. But inside the flowery sentence is really just the subject and the verb. And if I can identify that, I can solve the problem because I've made it smaller and just sort of ignore the flowery modifiers. And And that's helped me because sometimes when you're in the middle of the problem, it looks bigger than it really is. So I've always used the diagramming structure which I learned when I learned English, yeah. apply that to sort of general problem solving. I love it. I mean, that's kind of like a mind-blowing idea too, that when you can boil the thing down to the root of it, then you can unpack the rest of the thought or the problem or the language. Like, that's really beautiful. And I could see how that plays through with then how you've become a writer and also how that relates to law because of the, Obviously, you, you're a lawyer as well. And breaking everything down to its core is, wow. Yeah, that's very lawyerly. Yeah, it totally is. I, I know a lot of lawyers who, who never practice law. Like they just basically go to law school, they pass the bar, and they do something else. Mm-hmm. But uh, like some of them come to the university and talk about something interesting. And they have themselves told the story that even though they got a law degree and they never practiced law again, when they talk, people know that they're lawyers because it's very process in orientation. It's like step by step. And I think when you can break down a problem, that appears humongous because when you're in the problem, all problems appear humongous. Yes. There's like a dust storm around you. Uh, being able to go process by process or diagramming subject verb, even if it doesn't show you the whole problem, it does calm your mind down yeah. to thinking, 
you know, it's kind of like in AA, one step at a, one day at a time. You know, don't think of it as, oh my God, the rest of my life, I'm going to have to struggle with this. It's just like one day at a time. Yeah, and he kind of meandered from the question. So Harlan, I want to make sure about um, your experience too of, of high school and that isolation. I've, I've also had trauma in my own background and I could see how being able to parse something down to the root of something also means I can deal with something from a very pragmatic point of view instead of getting lost in maybe being triggered or the emotions of it that somebody else is throwing my way. Because when I can just say, okay, but this is the issue, then I can move forward with that thing instead of it being, and now all my emotions are in play. So I could, that's amazing. Thank you for that. The problem is that when I looked at Harlan's high school experience, when I was looking for her subject and her verb, I was using my subject and my verb to see if she was having difficulty in high school. And her subject and verb was different. So to me, you know, when I'm looking at the problem, I'm thinking in high school, the problem is you don't, you are, you're an, an outsider. Because that was my problem. Her problem was not that she was an outsider. So when I saw that she was not an outsider, I thought, well, she doesn't have any problem. You know, or whatever things were, were kind of all manageable. Her problem was that she was very much deeply an insider. And when you're an insider, you have very different kinds of problems, which is kind of like the jostling problem, right? You're, you're wrestling. Mm -hmm. You're inside the arena and you're wrestling with others, whereas I was never even in the arena to wrestle. And since, since I, didn't, I was not in the arena and she was in the arena, I thought, well, she has no problem. But all of her problems came from elbowing, chokeholds, uh, people kicking that you, you have to be near them to be able to get to. Yeah. And I was never near anybody to get that kind. There of was like problem. a huge jealousy problem, too. I think, well, I didn't know that at the time. Like, if you look back on things, you know, girls, our instinct is to be jealous of each other because I'm, I guess it's like our biology, you know what I mean? Like, we all have to like fight for like one to just like a guy. And then the guy's job is to just like, I guess, inseminate as many people as possible. But like, don't subscribe to it, please. Well, no, but I'm saying like the jet, like, jealousy comes from just like it's it's an instinct like on instagram a girl will post a picture of herself and a boy will look at it and just be like okay it's a girl a girl will zoom like another girl looking at will zoom in on the picture i've seen it all the time we look at like the stomach lines we look at like the, the face the skin everything and then we'll either be like oh she's so skinny like she's so pretty or like oh my god like why did she post that like that's and that i mean because that's not the point of the picture. She didn't ask to be evaluated. And I don't think they do it on purpose. Like, I don't think it's not like a typical teenage, like movie high school thing. It's very, it's, it's to the point where you can't even explain it if you want to talk about it, which is the hardest part. So that's, yeah. what, and then on top of it, like technology too. I just always felt like this is going to sound so cliche, but I always felt like I was born in the wrong time just because I hate, I only participated in like social media and stuff because everyone else was and I didn't want to fall behind, but I've never cared about it. And now as people get famous from doing nothing and they're just on social media and they literally do nothing, it makes me angry because it's like, why are people being given attention when they're not helping the world? Like, you, what are you even doing? So it all goes back to like something smaller. So for my individual high school, you know, Snapchat's a big thing. A lot of things disappear when you send them. So that opens up for like a lot of a lot of like sexual harassment, but to the point where people don't know it's sexual harassment because it's so normal. Do you know what I mean? Like it's not normal for girls to constantly be like asked for sex when they're like 13, 14 years old because the boys have been like watching porn and they think that's normal. Like it's all a loop. And then it it develops into like this competition between the girls and they don't even know that it's happening. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of my problem came from that too, just from the time we're growing up in. And also just, you know, I don't want to become political, but obviously like when someone's elected who shows that it's okay to like cheat on your wife with a porn star and nobody thinks that, that that's weird, you know, there's obviously going to be some effect to that. I'm not even speaking about his skills as a president, but just his personality and like what we've chosen, you know, like people saying, you know, I can, I can forgive that because I think he's going to do this, right? It's like a very individualistic idea. Like America as a whole, I think even though we're like one of the greatest countries, each 
it's not only like nowadays America first, but it's like every American first for themselves. Yes. We kind of just like, okay, well, you know, this isn't convenient to me. So I'm going to vote him in because he says he's going to do this, but it doesn't matter if, you know, a woman should be punished if she wants to get an abortion because her baby might kill her on the way out giving birth. Like, it's just this all like thinking one way for themselves. Mm -hmm. And I've seen it in high school and, but again, like, I don't want to be too dramatic. Not all of high school was bad. <laughs> a lot of people were really nice. And each person individually is great. I think it's, like, the problem of, like, the high school environment. That's the problem. I don't think it's the individual personality. Because I've hung out with a lot of these people by, by myself. And they're totally cool. They don't, don't say anything bad about anybody else. Um, it's just the high school environment. Yeah. Maybe it's the Bergman. Whereas, like, her problem more was, like, just, like, basic racism. Yeah. Well, and I think you've brought up some interesting things around even though there's more connection through something like Instagram or TikTok, it, it's kind of an anonymous connection. Like, it's not a real um, tangible thing. And then some of the anonymous or anonymity of it layers in and all of us or people start to feel like they don't what is it that like, we're missing something in the face-to-face and so there's maybe a new type of isolation where we think or some people in society feel like they can just act as if the other people in the world don't matter and they can work or, or or whatever and I, I think you've brought up a really valid point Harlan about when our leadership is showing that you can treat people poorly what is what gate got opened when that became air quotes okay because I clearly I do not think any of that's okay um, but I think there is some sort of tone that's been set that's kind of scary. It's so scary, too, when it's like his presidency marks the four years of my high school. That was really weird to me. Just like the day he was elected, it was freshman year. I already felt a difference. Like, I don't think that any boy in my school thinks like, oh, well, Trump does it. So I can, too. Like, they're not that simple. You know what I mean? Like, sure. there's something in their head where they're like, you know, Instagram makes things into a joke, for example. Like, it doesn't mean everything should be taken. But, like, I remember when Trump said the thing about, like, on the bus, on the recording about, like, grabbing women. Mm-hmm. It was all over Instagram, but it was made into, like, a joke. Like, an animal say it. Have, like, a baby say it. Or something like that. So, like, yeah. people don't even realize that he's literally running for president. And they don't get what that means. Um, I do think, like, the education... I, this isn't even part of the question. Sorry, I'm just... <laughs> no, it's okay. It's all interesting. I feel like the education system should have been molded when this was all going on to kind of like reverse any negative effects that occur. Like it's very interesting because we always say, you know, climate change matters. Like we have to fix it. But the president is basically saying, no, it doesn't matter. And the schools barely even teach about it. Like it's all up to us. Like when, like they're, they're instead teaching us about something that happened like millions, millions, millions of years ago, but they're not even pointing out like a, Plastic is going to go in the ocean. It's so simple. But people don't seem to care. And people who do care, they think, well, the economy is good. So that trumps the plastic going into the, you know, it's just this, it's it's impossible. And so I think that like, that also goes into like that mindset with politics also bleeds into social interactions. There's a lot of truth in there. The, The other thing that I feel like is bubbling up for us is that birds kind of back to you know, even parsing down sentences like words matter. And when people are being careless with them or Harlan, like you're bringing up, like they're kind of making a mockery and making it almost, they're bringing it into almost being acceptable that like a, an animal or a, yeah. a meme makes something acceptable in some ways that those words, when we're so careless with them, um, we're not giving them the space and the, and I don't know, that they kind of deserve, that this has been, this is a gross thing to say, but yet it's somehow, it's just getting, it got into the echo chamber and now people are like making it funny. There's something really special about the way that you are sharing in the book and and here too, you clearly love each other so much. And um, a lot of what I'm I'm talking about in in this season of Jumpstart Jumpstart Your Joy is about how we're kind of in the messy middle of things. Some of what you just brought up, Harlan. Things, I mean, it's it's rough, right? Like a pandemic and in California, there's been a lot of wildfires and, and uh, race and equality questions have come up big this year. And, and I, there's been a lot of that and yet, and you both have faced a lot of it. How do you see in the midst of sitting with discomfort and maybe even in writing your book, you saw some of that. How do you sit with that, but also show each other and other people 
or or create joy in a space like this? You know, the, the one thing that I always felt confident about, even though my high school years were filled with instances where I felt not confident, but I'm now very confident that, you know, I'm, I'm just very adaptable, that I really actually have that resilience. And maybe that comes from just having, just having shown up in life and gone from one act one, act two, act three. So it's not like I only, you know, because her, she's, she's young, so she's only had a small part, but having gone through more years in life and having seen all the up and down, I feel very much like I, I can accommodate. And so when we're in the middle of all of this, just really weird things that are beyond our control, I find that the way to, and this is not to say I can always do it, but, but it, it is a, it's a path that can help you get to it, which is to focus on the part that you can control. So um, in many ways, like when Harlan talks about climate change, right, there's nothing we can control about whether or not a manufacturer of a car is going to decide to invest in a technology that is going to help us reduce the carbon footprint. Right. I can't do anything about that. But instead of feeling like, oh my God, there's nothing I can do. I do know that for example, I'm, I'm just not gonna buy bottled water. And I try to bring you know, a thermos with me if I feel like I'm gonna need water during the day and I'm, I'm not at home. So uh, I think just focusing on the part that you can control can also make you feel better. So you know, in the pandemic, um, I've not been able to do anything else outside of the house much because everything has shut down. Yeah. And, you know, like I, I like to watch movies and I, I feel like it, right? So those are things that I can control. Yeah. Um, it helps me write because a lot of what I'm watching in a movie, I am I'm watching almost as a reader would when the reader reads my work. Right. So I'm, I'm thinking, well, the director decides to put the angle of the camera this way. And there's an analogy to how a writer writes just with words to put the camera angle a certain way on the page. So by translating the movies into you know, a director's angle into a writer's angle, it actually helps me think about writing, even though I'm not able to go see a movie and even though I may feel blocked in writing. Yeah. So the way to, to sort of find your happiness is, is try to find the part that somehow resonates with you, I find, and then focus on that, right? I don't like to read when I'm all by myself so much, strangely, um, or while I'm writing, I don't want to read. Yeah. By, by watching a movie, I'm able to segue into reading. It, it makes me feel less disconnected with others during the pandemic also. Yeah. So a lot of it is just sort of, I think, focusing on what you can do, not on what you can't do. Right. Yeah. Because you'll feel overpowered. And then from the part where what you can do, sometimes it's a mental shift. So true. It's not anything you can do, actually, but just how you view the thing can help. I think, for, like, for me, for happiness and caring for people, Despite everything, um, I've realized what works is to only put focus toward people that I know we benefit each other, if that makes sense. Like, yeah. um, just I've, I've already never liked huge groups anyway, but like, for example, it's really hard to talk about, but like, uh, like two months ago, there was a girl, she's in like acknowledgments of my book. She's like, there's a huge section about her. And... It, I had to call it quits on the friendship because it was clear that I prioritized her too high because, you know, other things in her life, like a new boyfriend or whatever, he wasn't treating me well and she ended up picking his side. And he just gotten here. So it's very irritating for me because I'm thinking, what has he ever done for you? You know, this and And I know people at the end of the day will realize exactly which relationships should have been worth it to them. So I'm sure she'll understand later, but I'm not willing to wait, 
because the stage of waiting is too painful and it makes me feel um, unworthy and embarrassed of myself, which is something I haven't felt for a really long time, like since the beginning of high school. And I just hate when that feeling comes up again, because when I've managed to not like be myself and it comes back, I feel helpless. So any relationships where I um, are not good for me, I only, I mean, I'll only focus on the ones that are, I guess is what I'm I guess that's not a good, I don't want to seem like I'm like selfish where it's like, oh, if you don't treat me nicely, then I guess screw you. It's not, that's not what I mean, but it's, it's kind of like, and it is hypocritical because there's been times where like with boys, I mean, obviously like they don't treat me well, but I'm like, no, I, they will, you know, (laughs) so there's always times where I'm delude, you know, I'm delusional, but um, that's important is knowing what's right for you. Like, you know, I don't want to go to a party if I feel like everyone there hates me. Like, what's the point of going to the party? <laughs> like, I'd honestly rather just like stay home with like the one best friend that I have that treats me really nicely now. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. I think, and I'm, I'm happy in that. And, um, but that's very hard to do actually. Oh yes. You know, when is this a delusion and when are you just waiting out? I mean, these things are things we struggle with all through life, even as adults. And it's like through a bunch of human relationships that taught taught me that. Right. You only know it by having gone through it yourself. Like there is no manual that is going to tell you. You know, I remember when I was pregnant, there's a book that says what to expect when you're expecting. Yes. Like, okay, you know, this is going to happen on the fifth month and things like that. But with human relationships. There is no such thing as like a manual that tells you if this happens, right. you know, at this stage, this is going to happen. So you're just bumbling through trying to figure it all out, even, no matter what age you're at. For sure. Yeah. And I remember a relationship in college, you know, with a friend that I'd had for years and it did get to that point where there, there was the realization that I have a choice. Like this person doesn't, she doesn't seem to honor who I am and she just seems to want to almost make fun of me was what it was boiling down to. And like, that was the humor of it for her or something. And then really stepping up and, and telling her, I can't be friends anymore. Cause this doesn't feel good to me. Like that was hard and scary, but I'm really glad that I did it because kind of Harlan to your point, when it's not, when it's not right in any kind of relationship, honoring yourself and knowing I'd rather spend time with people that see me for the good person I am and, and that celebrate, me and life role like that that's who i want so or 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 even you know you'd rather spend time people with people who bring the better part out of you exactly like sometimes you have a dynamic with an established framework where certain things just keep recurring yeah and it's not necessarily one person's fault or another person's right and 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 it has its own pattern Mm -hmm. and so Sometimes you're not whom you who you want to be when you're in that situation as yeah. well. Yeah. And that's so hard to especially if there's a long history to say, I don't this doesn't feel right. And yeah. But I with other people, yeah, they just bring out the best and you're like I am kind of curious, Harley, because you, you started writing this book with your mom when you were what, sixteen ish? Mm-hmm. What has it been like to be in the writing process? through high school and now into college. What is the, what does that look like for you? It's like when every time that a teacher would tell us like, okay, time to do your homework. Now I'm going to give you an hour to work on your computers. I would work on my book because the due date was literally the next day and I hadn't done anything yet. And it's obviously not a normal thing to do. Like if you want to say normal and you know, there were times where it would get around like, Oh, Harlan's writing a book, like watch out what she's going to say about you. And you know, a lot of times like this one girl, she was kind of really popular in school. It was a new, a new school I had gone to. And she um, obviously didn't like me very much. We had a mutual friend and I asked her, I was like, why doesn't the girl like me? And she was like, well, she just like thinks you have a lot on your plate and she doesn't want to deal with it. She's like, she's like, for example, like you're writing a book. I think she's threatened by that. For some reason, people didn't like it. Either people were really excited about it or they didn't like it at all. Or they'd be like, oh, well, you'll definitely get in, you know, this school or that, school. you know, like lucky you. So I didn't like to tell a lot of people about it because I didn't like talking about my work until it's done. And I'm sure that it's good and people tell me that it's good. And in terms of time management, I guess, I hate to say this, but it's never been a problem for me just because I'm not a panicker. Like things are only a problem if you acknowledge that they're a problem. (laughs) It's definitely not a healthy way to see it, but it's so true. Like 
even if something's a, like objectively a problem, if you don't see it as a problem, then it's not going to worry you. I didn't see a problem in managing my time. Yeah. Honestly, I don't even remember writing it because I did it so quickly. I had so many feelings and because my personality is so up and down anyway, like not like by Paul, you can tell. And also like in the writing, I would sometimes have to wait for a feeling of like something like a jostle in my head to write. Like I couldn't just be in like a new mood and like start talking about my dad's death. You know what I mean? Like I have to be like, it's like when you, um, when you're sad, I don't know if you ever did this, like as a kid or even now, like when you're sad, you play sad music to make yourself feel worse. You know what I mean? Like you just want to feel like, it's like that, like for writing or like if I feel happy, like I'll write it down to make myself feel better. And I was lucky because before I had started this book, I had already a lot of things I had written about my life that I just put in. Like, like probably 25% was written before I even got the book deal. I just had to edit it to seem more like adult. So if somebody wants to find your book, where is the best place to find it? And um, how can people find you before we get into our last question? It's all online. So you can go to the usual suspects or you can go to, a, you know, like we did a talk yesterday at Chevalier Books in L.A. Mm-hmm. Get it on their website just to support them, to support the smaller independent bookstores. And if they want it signed, we can even go to L.A. and sign it up and they will ship it. It's, it's available yeah. everywhere. We're on Facebook and We're Instagram. On Facebook. Harlan is on uh, Harlan, what, underscore BC. Mm-hmm. And mine is just Lankow. And I have a website, lankowauthor.com. Awesome. So people can uh, get all the events that are forthcoming from there. That's Very cool. cool. You have um, a website, Harlan. Harlan has a website too, harlanvancow.com. Wonderful. I'll link up to all of them. And uh, the last question that I like to ask everybody is what are three ways that you can think of to jumpstart joy in your life, in the world, or in other people's lives? I like the uh, saying, and I think Harlan and I probably subscribe to to this one because I'm always telling her about about it since she was little, which is I like the Gandhi uh, saying, be the change you want to see. And I I try to implement that because when I'm faced with like, oh, am I going to do this versus that? I try to think of that. And if if I can bring up my better half, my better self, by applying the Gandhi mantra, that makes me feel really good. Because I could easily go the other route, the route of being angry when something happens, right? So I, I try to go that route, and, and it makes me happier if I'm able to succeed. I'm not always able to succeed, but that is my goal. The other thing that I think has really helped me jumpstart my own happiness is, and again, I'm not able to do this all the time, but I have a, a filter where if I, I want to say something, I try to say, is it true what I'm going to say to the other person? Is it kind and is it necessary? That also tempers me, you know, like if I feel an outburst, I mean, I'm not trying to say I don't have outbursts. I mean, like sometimes I can't control myself, but mm-hmm. I try to have that filter. And when I am, am able to apply that filter before I say something, is it time? Is it true? Is it necessary? Um, then it makes me feel happy as well. And the third thing that's always really helped me I, I just love having a dog. You know, the dog is just yeah. a joy to have around. A pet I um, is, is, is really good. Yeah. We have a German, rec- a German rescue, chef, yeah. a rescue, and he's been great. That's for what us. I was going to say is like people just need to spend time with animals. So it's like a huge thing because it doesn't only make you more aware of like wanting to take care of the planet and stuff like, like any animal. I'm not even talking about just a dog. Obviously, dogs are amazing. But people who have dogs, they're just more kind because they understand. The relationship, like a dog, or you know, cat, I don't, or anything. But like, if you are religious, it's like the idea of every religion. It kind of subscribes to the idea of like it's very important to be loyal, right, to like the God and like make sure you acknowledge and are, you're grateful. But it's so interesting because dogs, even when they're beaten to a pulp, they will still come back wagging their tail at you. Yeah. And that's something. I mean, that's not necessarily a thing for all humans to be. I'm not saying like people who are abused should like wag or feel their abusers. That's not what I'm saying. But it's just the idea of like unconditional love. And obviously, you know, human beings are more complex than that. We can't all have unconditional love for everybody. But I just think it's important to spend time with animals. 
everybody show. That's like I think it'd be really cool for schools, like high schools, to have like dog day or something. Like a dog in every classroom or something like that. It just relieves depression, and then depression obviously like will spread out onto other people. So it's important. Um, I think another thing is just being self-aware because that's all you have control over is yourself. You know, you always wonder what's it. What would it be like to live in that person's body or to be in that person's life instead? Um, it's okay to wonder that, but you have to acknowledge that it literally doesn't matter. And you are yourself, you can improve yourself. Tell yourself that you have control actually. It sucks when you feel like you have no control. Like, you know, I think I have no friends. Well then go make friends. Like, I mean, it's easier. I mean, especially like at this age, like it's so, during this time, it's so easy now with like technology. It's just always knowing what you have control over, what you don't being self-aware, being like kind. And um, I don't know, what, what were the third one? Well, I told you that you and I always think the, the Gandhi be the, be the change you want to see in the world. So. Yeah, but that's so that's, hard to do too. No, yes. like I always tell you, you know, if, if you think that the, the sidewalk is dirty, you know, pick the trash up. Yeah. Or bring the coffee mug to Starbucks instead of ordering online where you come and pick it up and it's in a plastic cup. Right. And those are small things, but I, I think when you see that you're doing something like that, it does make you happier because you feel like you're doing something that matters. Yeah. And you do set an example. I mean, even like the example of, like you said, picking up trash. Oftentimes when I'm out on a walk, I'll pick up what yeah. I see. And then it seems like other people picking up on it. Like once you see like, oh, it's clean that, that I don't know. It, hmm. Well, thank you guys. This has been such a treat. You're, you're totally oh, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed having you on. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for your time. Lon and Harlan, thank you so much for being on the show. It was such a big treat to have you on. And I really appreciate your book, which is amazing. And the fact that you came on to talk so openly about your experiences and how you wrote it. I'm also working on my very own book about how to jumpstart your joy in the messy middle. And so you are definitely an inspiration to me. If you want to find out more about this conversation or where you can get family in six tones, you can find everything you need to know over at the website, which is jumpstartyourjoy.com forward slash episode 274, 274. While you're there, be sure, sign up for the newsletter, get in the know, <laughs> jumpstart your joy with some of the curated stuff that I'll be pulling together. You'll also find out more about my own book when that is coming out, which will be soon. And uh, then for next week, I'm really excited because I have another very special interview with John McEwen, and he is from the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band. Oh my goodness. What a treat to get to speak to him. And we talk about his travels, how they were, how the band itself was one of the, one of the very first that was allowed into Russia when they were still a communist country and had a lockdown of musical acts that could come in. And it's just a real treat to speak to a musical legend. So I hope you'll come on back for that episode. And until then, I hope that your days are filled with so much joy. <laughs>